Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord of the harvest, that's what we want to do from the very first is to obey that text. Obey your voice through that text to us. So we pray that, and we do it with earnestness, that you would send out laborers into your harvest. Because you are the God of this world, this world is not a barren place. There is hope. And because Christ is a great and triumphant and sufficient Savior, there is no one anywhere who is so far or so deep or so darkly in sin that Christ is not able to redeem them. And so we have great confidence as we look at this portion of your word because of Christ's power, because of what we see of your willingness to save in this text, and because of what we believe you are still willing and ready and able to do this morning. So, Father, some, uh, some who are here are your children already, and they need to be helped and equipped and fed, and they need to see you again and see your son again. So I pray you do those things and edify them and sanctify them. And some have come into this room, and the, your wrath still remains on them, and they need to be uh, brought to new life and given faith in Christ and, and united to him, and that's what we pray for. You are the giver of both those gifts. We can't, we can't take them for ourselves. We can't manufacture for, uh, them for ourselves. You must be the giver. Salvation is of the Lord, and we rejoice uh, to remember that together, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, being Jesus uh, means mission. And I'm going to use the word mission uh, like I did last week uh, multiple times in this sermon. And when you hear that word, I don't want you to think only about cross-cultural international missions. I want you to think about cross-cubicle, also cross-the-street, cross-neighborhood, even cross-the-family-table-or-the-living-room kind of mission as well. Okay, and because I think that's what this text is talking about, both the the nations and the neighborhoods. Okay, and what it means to be Jesus is to literally be a mission. Remember, his very name means mission. Really, do you remember chapter one? Right, the angel says to Joseph, "You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his." People from their sins. Why is it? His name is his mission. 
And if being Jesus means mission, then certainly following Jesus must also uh, mean mission. And that's exactly what we see Jesus say to Peter and Andrew when he calls them back in chapter 4. Remember, he says, follow me, follow me, you follow me, and do you remember what's next? And I will make you fishers of men. And, And Jesus, you know, the implication is, I'm a fisher of men. So if you follow me, I'm going to beget after my own kind. So if you follow me, uh, and since I'm a fisherman and I just fished you, Peter and Andrew, you, by being with me and following me, are going to be transformed into a fisherman. Jesus always begets after his own kind. And why would he do that? Because he intends that the, his own compassion, right, will rule the fate of many. Now think about it. The father didn't keep his son to himself. I mean, this is, this is what we celebrate as Christians. This is so amazing to me. The father did not keep the son to himself, right? But he sent him into the world. He was willing to give him up for us all, to not spare him the cross, but send him into the world and deliver him up for us all. And the son didn't keep himself for himself, right? But emptied himself, Paul says in Philippians 2, emptied himself and willingly took on freely, happily, right? For the joy set before him, willingly took on the form of a bond servant by being made in the likeness of human flesh. It's absolutely amazing. And why, why didn't the father keep the son to himself? And why didn't the son keep himself to himself? Because... Because both the Father and the Son stand over history and declare that the compassion of Jesus Christ is going to rule the fate of many. And so it is, as I explained last week, that as we're in this transition point in in Matthew's Gospel, what we're going to see is this truth get hammered home again and again that when Jesus calls somebody to himself, he he doesn't call us, Jesus never calls anyone to himself so that we can keep Jesus for ourselves or to ourselves. We have a, an individual relationship with Jesus, right? He calls us into an individual relationship. He looks Peter in the eye and says, you personally, particularly follow me. He looks Andrew in the eye and he says, you particularly and personally follow me. He says to Matthew in the tax booth, you particularly and personally follow me. But what we see again and again is that that individual relationship is never intended by Jesus Christ to be a private relationship. The, the gospel is a sacred trust and we are trustees. There's a lot of talk in New York City today about the obesity epidemic, right? Do you see that? Uh, that the city has, is so concerned about the obesity epidemic that they've banned big gulps. Well, you know, there, there is an obesity epidemic, right? I mean, we have, a, we, have a, we have a weird relationship with food, right? Where we misuse food. Food is supposed to sustain our lives and equip us to work and to serve. That's why God gives it to us, so we can worship, work, and serve. Okay? Spiritual food is exactly the same way. God gives us spiritual food in the gospel to sustain our lives, but that is never an end in itself. He gives us the gospel, and I'm addressing my Christian brothers and sisters here, right? He gives us the gospel and feeds us 
through the Lord Jesus Christ, so, not so that we'll get spiritually obese, but so that we'll be equipped and strengthened to go and to speak and to witness. So we looked at these verses last week, and I said that they mark a critical juncture in Matthew's gospel as he's beginning to entrust ministry to his disciples. And, and uh, in terms of dividing the text up, I said that before Jesus sends us out, before he sends his disciples out, he has to correct our vision in three particular ways. Uh, and we looked at the first last week. In order to prepare us uh, to do mission and witness in his name, he has to correct our vision and synchronize our vision with his in three ways. First, uh, he teaches us to see the world as he himself sees the world and feels about the world. And that's what we looked at last week. And then secondly, and thirdly, which is what we're going to look at this morning, Jesus uh, teaches us from this text uh, to see ourselves as he sees us, and then also to see him as he sees himself. So this morning we're going to look at what it means to learn to see ourselves as Jesus sees us, and then also what it means to see Jesus as Jesus sees himself. And may God grant that the compassion of Jesus Christ will rule the fate of many, not only in this room, but from this room, right? What Jesus puts in us, he intends, will flow out of us into the lives of others. So what does it mean to see ourselves first as Jesus sees us? Well, two things I want to point out from this text. First, we need to see ourselves as the recipients of Jesus' compassion. And secondly, we need to see ourselves, we learn from this text, as the agents of Jesus' compassion in the world. The recipients of Jesus' compassion and the agents of Jesus' compassion. Let's think first about what it means to be a recipient of uh, Jesus' compassion. This is really... Uh, very helpful. This, this text is so helpful because, friends, we ought to just be absolutely amazed. I mean, one of the things that ought to define Christians is we ought to walk around regularly with our jaws dropped open. And because when, if you really just, just take just a little drop of what the gospel is and you ponder what is true, if you look at that cross and look past what is familiar past the surface to what it represents about God and what it represents about man and what it represents about Jesus Christ and then that you understand that and that you've been joined to Christ. Friends, it ought to just floor us. We are the recipients of Jesus Christ's compassion. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning, do you know what verse 36 is? This wonderful verse, right? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That certainly is a window into how Jesus viewed the crowds in Matthew 9. But it's also much more than that because in giving us this ability to stand behind Jesus' eyes to see what he saw and to feel with his heart the compassion that he had for the crowds, what this text is also doing is giving us a sacred window into how Jesus Christ saw you, how he felt about you. 
The compassion of Jesus, if you're a Christian this morning, the compassion of Jesus Christ rules your fate. Do you know that? You are the recipient of the compassion of Jesus Christ, Christian. Incredible. He looked out upon you as someone who was harassed and helpless. You didn't know know what it was, but he knew that at the bottom of all your struggles in life was this fundamental titanic structure, the structure that defines you, the disease that defines every human being apart from Christ, the ultimate malady, the ultimate disease, the ultimate sickness that defines human beings, and it is that human beings who were designed as the image bearers of God and therefore designed to live for God and find their joy in God live apart from God. And Jesus saw that about you. And his heart went out to you, my Christian brother or sister, every single moment of his ministry. Do you know his heart went out to you in his incarnation, in the shame of the questionable circumstances of his birth? His heart was going out to you in his obedience to a pair of, let's just, as much as we want to honor Joseph and Mary, they're sinners. And he, the perfect one, was under the sinful authority of parents who got it wrong a lot, just like the rest of us. And his heart was going out to you, my Christian brother and sister, every single moment of his incarnate life, every single act of obedience, every single triumph over temptation, every single fulfillment of the law, he was sending his heart out for you as someone who is one of his people. Amazing. And that heart continued to go out to you and for you all the way to the cross and in the suffering of the cross and in the triumph of his resurrection and in his enthronement at the Father's right hand. His heart is going out to you, my Christian brother or sister, with compassion, with kindness, with love, with faithfulness. And as if all of that accomplishment in history was not enough, he found you in your conversion, right? He came to you. He accomplished redemption because his heart was going out to you because of his compassion for you. And then what he did is he took all that treasure while you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, when you had not given a thought for Jesus Christ, his heart was going out to you and yours was going away from him. And what did he do? He came to you and applied all the benefits of his work into your life. So that now, when you answer the Heidelberg Catechism question number 60, how are you right with God, and you do it by faith, you are able to tell the truth about you that's true about you only because of what's true about Jesus. It's absolutely amazing. You know, at our last session meeting, we've been, in our devotions, we've been going through uh, the pastoral epistles this year, and we were in 2 Timothy chapter 2, And we got to the part in verse 2 in 2 Timothy 2. It would be good for you to look it up later today. When Paul says to Timothy, The things you've heard from me, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And we were just marveling that when Paul says this from a Roman jail cell to Timothy, he's got four, excuse me, I was going to put up three fingers, and I mean four. 
Okay. Some people, you know, some people say the thumb is one. I, the thumb is not one. This is one, right? Okay. Right, now, now I'm all insecure. Four, okay? Paul has four generations in view. The things you've heard from me, Paul. You heard them from me, Timothy. Okay, Timothy, you now entrust these to faithful men. Faithful men that Paul doesn't even know. Who will be able to teach others also four generations out or four uh, iterations out. And Paul has this vision to see the progress of the gospel. And we're, we were sitting together at the session meeting saying, wait a second. The gospel got to us. The gospel got to us. Sitting in that room, how many more levels of transmission of faithful Jesus, compassion, formed, ordained, equipped, protecting uh, transmissions of the gospel. Did it require for the gospel to get to the men who are in that room? It's staggering to think about it. For the gospel to get to you, friend. We are recipients of the compassion of Jesus Christ. And that should fill our lives with an unquenchable wonder. Because none of that was by our doing. And none of that was because of our deserving. And my non-Christian friends, you know what? I can tell you that the compassion of Jesus Christ is available to you this morning to rule your fate. Jesus brought you into this room this morning so that there would be this holy encounter between your life and the living Lord so that you would not have to avert your eyes or your heart from him any longer. And he is saying to you in all the power of his resurrection that on the basis of his perfect life and death, that his compassion is available to you to rule your fate. And that word rule is really important because it means that when you relate to Jesus Christ, you relate to him as a king, not a service provider. And he's available to you in all the fullness this morning. It's absolutely stunning. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters for a couple reasons. First of all, the reason I labor this point is because if you aren't amazed by the gospel, you won't share it, right? Let's just, let's just say that. And you need to work back, right? If we're, not, if we're not talking about Christ with non-Christians, it's because we're not amazed. That's the bottom line. It's not a question of gifts. It's a question of joy. It's not, a, it's not even a question of opportunity. Because, you know, really, no one, it, no one in this room lives all by themselves. We're around other people, and we do talk to them. And we talk to them about the things that really interest us, the things that are on the top of our hearts, right? Like, like whatever team you like. I have a friend from California who went to USC, the, the real USC, University of Southern California. And yesterday... I mean, I woke up this morning, and while I was brewing my coffee, I, I uh, looked at Facebook, and I guess there was a USC game yesterday. You know how I knew? Because every five seconds, 
he had posted something about the game on Facebook. It's what was on the top of his heart. Now, it may not be football for you, but you do talk about what matters to you. Right? John Piper says this, we, we, we will not commend what we don't cherish, but what we cherish we'll, we'll commend. We'll talk about what matters to us. And friends, I, I got to tell you that the way these verses have worked in my life is they have called me to repentance so deeply. Not deep enough, but deeply. Because I've been, forced to, I've been forced to ask myself, how much on the tip of my tongue is the wonder of Jesus Christ? We commend what we cherish, and if we don't cherish something, we don't commend it. You know, David says in Psalm 51, he says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. This is absolutely amazing. Verses 11 and 12. He says, Restore to me the joy of, salvation, of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is David who's committed the sin against Bathsheba and the sin against Uriah and the sin against Joab, ultimately, but ulti- I mean, ultimately, sin against God, right? This is David who's saying to God, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, uphold me with a willing spirit. Do you know what comes next? It just is crazy. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Do you see what David is saying? And that that prayer is a spirit-inspired prayer. That was the Holy Spirit's prayer before it was David's. What the Holy Spirit is saying is the best missionaries are people who've been saved by God's grace. And when, we, when we're amazed by the wonder that we have been welcomed into this salvation, we are the recipients of Jesus Christ's compassion, that's when we're equipped, and by that joy, equipped and empowered to go share and invest in the lives of others. Okay? It's also important, and this anticipates chapter 10, it's also important to understand ourselves as the recipients of Jesus Christ's grace and compassion, because what it means is this. There are no limits to what he can legitimately call us to do for him. No limits. There was no limit. There was nothing that Jesus held back for us. Nothing. There was not a single line he drew, ever. There was never a box that he placed around his obedience and said, this far and no farther for us. To the degree that we are gripped by Jesus' mission for us, we will be empowered to represent him to others. See, I have a box. God has shown me through these verses. I've got a box, and it's called the box of Mike's willingness. And you know what's in that box? Jesus' willingness. I, so often in my life, I try to enclose and set boundaries and define what Jesus is willing to do ultimately in terms of what I'm willing to do for him. And that's completely inside out. Because he turned himself inside out for us. 
We're also agents of Jesus' compassion. He takes, the Lord takes the recipients of his compassion. Follow me, right? Like he says to Peter and Andrew. And he transforms them into the agents of his compassion. And I will make you fishers of men. He, I mean, this, we'll think more about this next week, but it, not only is it amazing, right? Jaw-dropping amazing that we, concretely, you and I would be the objects, the recipients of Jesus Christ's compassion. But the wonder of the gospel continues to unfold because Jesus then takes us and extends his compassion through us. Not just to us, but through us into the world. And nobody here could possibly feel worthy of that. Isn't that incredible? 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. Christian, that's who you are. Do you know who sits on the highest throne in the universe? Do you know under whose feet everything has been put in subjection? Do you know who holds all the forces of history in his hand? Do you know who rules the United States? Do you know who rules Al-Qaeda? Do you know who rules all of history? The Christ who has appointed you his ambassador. You see, when we get that, It doesn't matter where we live. It doesn't matter what our education is. It doesn't matter how much money we have. It doesn't matter whether we get the job we so long to have. That is the highest dignity a human being could possibly have, to be the ambassador of Jesus Christ. And the only reason it doesn't grip us that way is because we don't believe it. I mean, we don't believe it enough, and we don't believe it with the kind of clarity that we ought to. I speak as the guy at the front of the line there, okay? But this stuff needs to sink in, and Jesus here is saying, I want to use you. I want to use you. And it's interesting how he does it, isn't it? He says to his disciples, he says in verse 37, he says, okay, come here, come here. And I want you to stand right here, and I want you to look at all those people And I want you to see something. Let me tell you what I see. I see a plentiful harvest. And I also see very few laborers. Now that's that's quite a jarring contrast, isn't it? Great opportunity and a great shortage. And Jesus wants his disciples right in the middle of that. It's not either or, it's both and. And he wants us standing right in the middle of that. And he wants us to look in both directions. Why? I mean, can you imagine being one of the disciples? Wouldn't you feel completely overwhelmed by that? Yeah, I would. I I mean, I do. And I I guess I would say if if we're not overwhelmed, it's because we're not paying attention. I mean, just think about your neighborhood. 
Just think about the little, or your workplace, just think about the little things that you know, the little tips of the icebergs or your dorm floor or your classmates, right? Just the little tips, the, the littlest tips of information that you know about these people's lives that God has sovereignly put you around. And you can extrapolate, sometimes pretty accurately, that there's a lot of pain and need there. And then you look at yourself how in the world are you possibly going to be able to make a difference in their lives? Well, guess what? I have wonderful news for you, and I think it's exactly the news that Jesus has. You aren't. But Jesus can. You see, I think there's a very, there's a very deliberate strategy that Jesus has here. The sequence of events, I think, is very profound. He says, look at the gap between the plentiful harvest and the shortage of labors. Feel that gap. Let me, let me invite you, call you to be overwhelmed. Let me open your eyes so that you can see what I see, which is there is massive opportunity and massive need. And when you stand in that gap in your own life, and you think about those two things, there is no way that your solution can be I can meet these needs. So why is Jesus doing that? Why does he do that to us? Why would Jesus want us to be overwhelmed? Well, I'm, as in so many ways, I am helped by John Owen again here. And John Owen says this, in a different context, but I think it applies uh, equally here. John Owen says this, Many men know not what is in them, or rather, what is ready for them, until they are put upon what seems utterly above their strength. Indeed, what is really above their strength. And then Owen goes on, he says this, the duties that God requires at our hands are not proportioned to what strength we have in ourselves, but to what help and relief is laid up for us in Christ. Now, see, let me translate that. What Owen is saying is he's saying, listen, when God calls us to a duty, that call has nothing to do with his evaluation of our abilities to meet that duty. When God calls us to a duty, he calls us to the duty without reference to our abilities because we don't have any. And the index of whether or not God is calling you to something has nothing to do with your abilities. What it has to do with is the readiness and willingness and abilities of Jesus Christ to meet the needs that that duty that he's calling to you to requires. So he wants us in the gap so that we will be freed from any illusion that we could possibly close that gap, that our power or our strength or our hearts or our own compassion would be sufficient to meet that need, whether it's in your class or your circle of friends or your family or your neighborhood or your workplace. No, the hero of that gap is one person alone. His name is Jesus Christ. And so that's why verse 38, he says, Therefore right? See the gap, feel the gap, and the therefore. Now, you know, if you're a doer, you, you say, what's on the other side of that? Therefore is go, right? If you see the gap, you're going to go. And Jesus says, if you see and feel the gap, the, the clearest and truest measure of whether or not you feel that and see it accurately is you're going to pray. You're going to begin by praying, 
That's, that's so shocking to me. And so I've wondered about that for a long time. Why pray? Why do you call us to prayer? Why is the response to the gap as agents of your compassion prayer? And I think that there are several reasons. We could spend hours on this, but let me just suggest three for you, okay? The first has to do with unity. I think that Jesus calls us to begin by praying. And notice, notice what it is. I'll, I'll get to this in a minute, but let me anticipate it. Notice it's not just praying but it's what we pray for. He's not even telling us to pray for the non-Christians, although we should do that, right? But what he's telling us to pray for first and foremost is for laborers to go to them. Do you see that? So it's not just prayer as an end in itself, prayer as sufficient by itself. It's a particular kind of prayer, okay? A particular focus. And this first thing that I'm thinking about is that when we pray as Jesus calls us to pray, you know the first thing that's happening is that our hearts are being brought in alignment with his. So when I talk about unity as a reason that Jesus might call us to begin by praying, it's, it's this unity. It's do we want what Jesus wants? And maybe you don't. And maybe the most honest thing for you to say is, you know, I don't really want what you want, but I want to want what you want. You, you, some of you have heard me say that that's the prayer that I pray the most in my, in my own life because I just have to begin where I am every day. I see what you want. I see that I don't want it, but I want to want what you want. Do, do you believe that God can handle that, by the way? I hope you do. And in this area, too, I think God wants us, Jesus wants our hearts to be aligned with his. And that's what happens when we pray. I think equality, not just unity, but also equality is a really important thing. Do you notice this? That so often when we think about uh, interacting with non-Christians and sharing the gospel with them, uh, we tend to discount ourselves. We think we're, we're not capable of doing it. We don't know the right answers. Uh, we haven't been a Christian that long, all those kind of things. You notice, and so those people need to do it. Evangelism is a specialty. Reaching out to lost people is a specialty. You know, you, it's like SEAL Team 6. You got the SEAL Team 6 people in the church, and then there's the rest of us. You know, we're logistics. Do you notice how this command by this command, Jesus is enlisting every single Christian, regardless of giftings or opportunity or experience. Do you notice how this flattens out the distinctions between Christians? Because every Christian can pray, verse 38, and therefore every Christian must. Because every Christian has equal access to the same throne of grace. Every Christian has been filled with the same Holy Spirit Right, Every Christian is equally empowered on the basis of Christ's work to be able to do evangelism on their knees before the face of God. So it's not a question, go back to Owen, it's not a question of what strength you have in yourself. God has provided not just an advocate in heaven for you in the Lord Jesus Christ, but friends, Romans 8.26 he has also provided the notary, if you will, the person to write up the petitions and to pray and intercede through you 
because of your weakness. So this is a duty and a calling that Jesus means to spread out over all of his people. And then also there's reality. Jesus, when he calls us to pray, is calling us into reality. Friends, we're not adequate for this work, but Jesus is. Right? We have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay or earthen vessels, depending on your translation. And why did God do that? Why would he put the gospel in us when we're just cracked pots? Why? Paul says this is God's design so that no one would mistake where the power is coming from. The power comes from God and not from us. And when Jesus calls us to pray, listen, that's reality. Reality of a a creature before an almighty God a creature who is totally dependent on God. And what are we supposed to pray? What's our response supposed to look like? What does it mean to be an agent? We pray, but what do we pray for? Do you notice what Jesus says? He says we should be praying that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers out into the harvest. You know, I looked at this verse for weeks before the most obvious thing about it dawned on me, which is I don't pray right. You know how I normally have prayed about, uh, about non-Christians is, Lord, bring them. Bring them. According to verse 38, that's not the way Jesus wants us to pray. You see, what Jesus, very radical, it's very missional. Jesus is saying, pray this way. Pray for laborers. Pray that the Lord of the harvest, who owns the harvest, pray that he will send out laborers into the harvest. You know, what he's, you know what he's saying? He's saying, the way you need to begin is by praying about Christians. Praying that Christians will be sent. This is not about a God. The answer to this prayer is not going to look like non-Christians, seekers coming to the church, but Christians as seekers going out from the church. And so let's think about what it means to apply these in our context. Well, there's the personal dimension, and then there is the corporate dimension. Okay? Personal dimension. Uh, I, I just encourage you to weave this into your praying regularly. And we've made it the memory, the, the memory verses for this month, verses 37 and 38, and I encourage you to take that little card and put it in the front cover of your Bible. And so every time you open your Bible... You pull it out and you review it. And, you know, here's what I believe is going to happen. God's going to put you in places where you suddenly sense and see open doors for conversations. And he's going to strengthen you with boldness. He might even send you. Pray through your circle of friends. This afternoon, it would be very good for you to sit down and make a list of the main or just the the cluster of non-Christians that you interact with on a regular basis. This is how this began for me several months ago. It's what I did. And I got that from William Wilberforce. Because Wilberforce, after Wilberforce had died, uh, one of the things they found among his papers was a thing that he had titled Friends Paper. And on that paper was listed the names of 30 of his friends. They didn't find it until after his death. And there was a little notation at the top of it that said, to be reviewed every Sunday. 
And next to each one of the names was some notation that Wilberforce had made about the next step that he personally could take in, in terms of assisting them to either find Christ or grow in Christ. Now, any of us can do that. And that's what will begin to happen. And then corporately, I would love to see you join us on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. I pray for this. That, that God, that, that, and let's just start with this. Lord, we want to want what you want. How pleasing that is to the Lord. That's what it means to see ourselves. We're the recipients and the agents of Jesus' compassion. We need to see ourselves accurately because Jesus means to use us. That's just stunning. But we also need to see, finally, Jesus, the way Jesus sees himself. And seeing him for who he actually and truly is and what he's done, that ultimately is the power for our mission. What's going to sustain your praying is not your memory that Mike spent a lot of time trying to guilt you into doing that. And I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not. I'm just trying to unfold what God's Word says. How the Spirit uses that in your life is between you and God. But the implications, I think, are clear. But where's the power going to come from? What undergirds that? Why would you care? It's because you see who Jesus is and what his ministry is about and, and, and who, what he has uh, in all of his power to offer uh, the world. Now, when you read the Gospels, this is, there's just a little before I get to the punchline, if you will. It's important to understand how we have to read the Gospels because... You know, the way the New Testament is set up, you have the Gospels, which are the, the inspired record of Jesus' earthly ministry, right? And then you have the epistles, the letters by the apostles. And what those are really are the reflection uh, of the, the implications of this earthly ministry, right? And so sometimes when you read the Gospels, right, the events that are described in the Gospel, those are before the cross for the most part, right? And so sometimes we feel a little uncomfortable bringing the cross in uh, to a passage before the cross has actually occurred in the flow of the narrative. And I don't think we should for two reasons. One is that, you know, everything in Jesus' ministry, all of his teaching and all the events, anticipated the cross. How can I say that with such confidence? Well, because Jesus knew what he was doing, right? He knew and so everything that Jesus says, every action he takes in the Gospels is just pregnant with anticipation of the cross and the ultimate conclusion of his ministry. And the Gospel itself, right? So everything in the Gospel that's recorded in the Gospel, the events themselves anticipate the cross. And then everything that's recorded in the Gospel, which is written... Uh, right under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit after the cross, then illuminates the cross. Why? Because Matthew and the apostles now knew what the meaning of Jesus' ministry was. So when we get to this passage, friends, when Jesus teaches us about 
the Lord of the harvest, the harvest and the labor in that harvest. He is describing his own ministry. You see, the gospel is absolutely stunning. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. That's what the gospel is going to reveal to us the farther we get into Matthew. You know, you notice how Jesus is deliberately ambiguous about who this Lord of the harvest is? He doesn't say pray to God. He doesn't say pray to the Father. He doesn't even say pray to me. He says pray to the Lord of the harvest. Who is the Lord of the harvest? It's Jesus Christ. We know that because first in the, in, in the very next portion of Matthew's gospel, it's Jesus who's going to send labors. And we know it later in the parables in chapter 13 because Jesus is the the son of man who oversees the final harvest at the end of history. So Jesus is talking about himself. He is the Lord of the harvest. And you know what's so amazing about the gospel? What what Jesus's ministry is about is that this one, friends, who is the Lord of the harvest He comes down into his own harvest. He comes down to visit, and not just to visit, but to labor in the midst of his own harvest. The earth is his field. And he comes down and personally walks in the midst of the field that is his. And he does it not as an owner, but as the servant, right? He comes as the laborer who sends himself into his own harvest. That's what it means for him to not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself and took on the form, made himself nothing, took on the form of a bondservant, a laborer in the earth. He hurled himself into his own harvest. He is the chief laborer. And what was the nature of his labor? The wonder of the gospel never ceases. The The nature of his labor was that he was sown like a seed in the earth. He came to labor in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. He came to be planted on the earth and to grow. Do you know the king in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us and shows us that the king of creation himself came to live and to grow and to live as the very crown of his own creation. The greatest thing the earth has ever produced is the life of Jesus Christ. He's the one pure seed. And he grew into a fruitful life that fulfilled God's design for humanity. And that life, he lived it in faithfulness and fruitfulness all the way to the cross. And he was harvested. All that righteousness was harvested at the cross. Friend, if you're a Christian this morning, you have righteous standing before God with the righteousness of Christ because Jesus lived a life and was a righteous harvest. And God shared the riches of that harvest 
with you and any and all who will trust in his son. So you'll have the righteous standing of Christ because Jesus grew it. There was a harvest for his life that you and I didn't produce. And then in his death, the gospel of John, remember in John 12, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat dies and falls into the ground, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. There will be a harvest. A harvest from Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, remember what Paul says about Jesus, not just in his life and his death, but also in his resurrection. When Jesus rises from the dead, he is called the first fruits, right? He's the first fruits of the new creation. This one who's calling us to pray to the Lord of the harvest is the one who himself not only is the Lord of the harvest, not only is the chief laborer in the harvest who was sent into the harvest, but he is also the ultimate harvest himself in the new creation. And friends, the beginning of the new creation, friends, if you're a Christian, or if you repent of your sins this morning and trust in Christ and are made a Christian by God's grace, then what's true about you is you are part of Jesus Christ's harvest. Friends, the wonder of the gospel is so great. He is worthy. He is worthy of your love. He is worthy of your loyalty. He is worthy of your telling. And he is certainly worthy of your going and your praying. May the compassion of Jesus Christ rule the fate of many. Let's pray. Lord, that's what we want. We want your compassion, not only to rule our fates, but the fates of many whom you will send us to and for whom you will have us pray and whom you will send out laborers whose names we will never know into your harvest. We pray in your name. Amen.